Blog Talk Radio. Radio brings you The Haunted Sea with host Scott Martis. And greetings to everyone. This is Julie Wrench for The Haunted Sea with Scott Martis. We welcome you back to another exciting episode. We have Scott here with us to tell us about the Champ Expedition 2018 got had spent three weeks on Lake Champlain back in August in search of the elusive camp. So let's bring Scott on. Scott, how you doing? Good. Hello, Julie. Um, so, yeah, tonight we're going to be talking about uh, the most recent Champ Expedition. Um, the original plan was to have William Dragenis, my research partner, come up with his boat like we did in 2017. If you want, if people want to see a recap of what happened on Champ Expedition 2017, I would suggest that they watch Alexander Petikov's mini-series in, uh, on the Trail of Champ, which was put out by uh, Small Town Monsters, and mm-hmm. is available on Amazon Video in five parts. Mm-hmm. Uh, Alexander actually went out on the boat with us for part of it. Wow! And you know that 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 trip we had a big boat that we could sleep on, and we had 3D side scan sonar and hydrophones and uh, biopsy darts and the works. I mean, probably the best equipped expedition that I've ever been involved with. And we were able to get an intriguing sonar contact near the mouth of the Alsable River on the New York side, which is also the same area that Peter Baudet shot his famous Champ video back in August of 2005. And we got some kind of a plesiosaur-shaped sonar blob that we estimate to be around somewhere around 10 feet long in that area. And then the same place, after the sonar contact was gone, I was able to get some echolocation-like clicks recorded on the hydrophones. And this is all in the the, uh, documentary, yeah. So anyway, moving on to this year... The original plan was that William was supposed to speak at Lauren Coleman's Cryptozoology Conference 
which took place this past September. And the original plan was we were going to meet up there before he had to go to the conference and do our Lake Champlain work. And also, uh, Jeremy Sanborn, who was a diver, still is, was supposed to come and dive for us to check out underwater locations of interest. Specifically, the plan was to look for underwater caves that might contain bones in them. And if we could find those on the sonar, the plan was to send Jeremy down to dive to go inside these caves and see well, if there was anything in them. Because there are several places around the world where there are underwater caves, underwater cave systems, that they have found dead sea turtle bones in. It's not clear whether the turtles purposely go into these places to die or if they swim in them and can't find their way back out and smother to death from lack of oxygen and just die in the caves. Mm -hmm. In addition to sea turtles being found in caves like this, there have also been manatees found, uh, crocodiles, and all sorts of prehistoric animals. Those bones may have just been, they may have died on shore and, and been washed out to sea and the bones washed into the caves. We just don't know. Right. But also, you know, these sea turtles are not fossil animals. They're modern animals. And the idea is, if champs are some kind of aquatic reptile, it's possible that they may do the same thing and go into underwater caves and die. So it would be worth checking out what's in there. Whatever champ might be, you know, its bones could conceivably be found in in these theoretical underwater caves. Now, I'm not aware of any underwater caves like that that we know about so far in Lake Champlain, the modern Lake Champlain. But there are two caves that are, or actually three, that are known that are left over from the Champlain Sea, which was the prehistoric version of Lake Champlain that was salt water and was much larger. Mm-hmm. Modern-day Lake Champlain is 120 miles long. I mean, it's huge. You get out in the middle of it, and you think you're out in the middle of the ocean. Right. But imagine, imagine. if this 120-mile-long lake was only the arm of a much larger sea that covered most of Ontario and almost all of Quebec, too, in Canada. We know this for a fact, that it was connected to the St. Lawrence River, which flows out to the Gulf of St. Lawrence and is partially salt water even today. The further inland you go in this huge river, the more fresh water it becomes. But back up in, between a period of like 12,500 years ago and 10,000 years ago, it was all salt water. And you had this huge sea, primarily up in the Canadian provinces of Quebec and Ontario, with this little arm that came down into Vermont, which is what is now modern-day Lake Champlain. There are abundant fossil remains 
of various kind of whales, primarily beluga whales, which are also found today in the St. Lawrence River, and much larger whales as well, four species of seal, and even walrus. Most of this stuff has been found up in Canada, in Quebec and Ontario, but in Vermont and New York State, there have been found two beluga whale skeletons and seal bones found over in Plattsburgh, New York, which is on the New York side of the lake. So we know that they were living here then. So that and was in the slide, what, you said 12,000 years ago? Yeah, between 12,500 years ago and roughly 10,000 years ago. And wow. what happened to cut off the marine influence was during the Ice Age, <clears throat> this, the entire region was covered in mile-thick sheets of ice. The weight of these ice sheets weighed down the continental plates and actually made them sink down lower than they normally would be. Then when the climate warmed up roughly about 13,000 years ago, all this ice started melting. And all that water had to go somewhere. So before the Champlain Sea, it was an even larger body of fresh water that had melted called um, Lake Vermont. And what kept this fresh water was there was an ice dam, a block of ice that was blocking the St. Lawrence River, keeping the salt water from coming in, but at the same time, huge quantities of it was melting. And this this Lake Vermont lasted for about roughly a 1,000 years. Then the ice dam that was blocking the St. Lawrence River broke. It melted to the point to where the salt water came rushing in, and it became the Champlain Sea. When it was Lake Vermont, it was 500 feet deeper than modern-day Lake Champlain. It would have been 900 feet deep. That's deeper than Long Ness. Yeah. They think they, think they were fish living in it, but it was a, a freshwater, muddy lake of low productivity probably somewhat similar to Loch Ness is now. Loch Ness is a huge body of water, but it's very unproductive for its size. I mean, theoretically, there is enough food in there to support barely a small colony of large unknown animals, but it's very dicey. And the reason why is the water color is stained dark by plant material, which they call peat, a type of moss that runs off the mountainsides and makes the water the color of whiskey. Now, why that Uh keeps the productivity in the lake down so much is in order for the phytoplankton, which is the base of the food chain, to be abundant, they have to get photosynthesis from the sun. Because of the darkness of the water, the light penetrates only down so much, and this inhibits sunlight from getting down to the phytoplankton, which is the base of the food chain, and keeps the productivity, you know, the amount of animals that can live in there down low because of that. 
So hmm. because they think Lake Vermont was so muddy, they think it was probably like that too. Anyway, so you've got this period of like 2,500 years where the salt water has mixed with the meltwater and has created this huge inland sea connected to the Gulf of St. Lawrence by the St. Lawrence River. Now, I spoke about the ice weighing down the continental plates. Okay, they were down lower than they normally would be, which would allow all this water to come in. They didn't bounce back immediately. It took time for it to start rising up again. It's still in the process of doing that. It's not finished. But anyway, about 10,000 years ago, part of the land in Quebec rose, rebounded. When that happened, the marine influence to what was then the Champlain Sea was cut off. Slowly Mm. over time, it became fresh water. And whatever was living in there in order to survive had to adapt to fresh water. Now, we know that there were whales and seals living in there when it was fully salt water. But at the same time, there was always freshwater meltwater coming into that salt water and making it brackish. So the entire time that the Champlain Sea existed, it was partially fresh water. It was more fresh water than a normal saltwater sea would be. So the animals, the whales and seals that were living in there were already living in partially brackish water. Hmm. Anyway, at the same time that these whales and seals were living in the Champlain Sea, there were a few types of fishes living contemporaneously with them that once the salt water was cut off, they managed to make the jump to fresh water and still survive in the lake today. So the important thing about that is that tells us that something could have come in from the sea and adapted to fresh water and been landlocked and survived to the present day, which may be our monsters that people are seeing. Right. And see, that would make sense for them to be there because of the way mm -hmm. it used to be uh, the salt water. Yeah. You know, some people theorize that the Lake Champlain monsters are some kind of giant long-necked seal or some kind of primitive whale. Well, we know there were seals and whales living in there anyway. So that reinforces that idea and the fact that we have rainbow smelt, uh, Lake Champlain sea lamprey, uh, lake trout, and landlocked Atlantic salmon historically were native to the lake and are considered to be leftovers from the Champlain Sea. So Hmm. if something larger than those fish managed to make that jump too and we haven't found it yet, then there's your monster. <clears throat> so it's things like this right. looking at looking at hard science, looking at limnology, which is the study of lakes, and fisheries biology 
and the geological history of the lake, we can put forward scientific facts to support the idea, the theory, that there could be something left over from the prehistoric past that is surviving in Lake Champlain today. But as exciting as that is, we've got to find a type of specimen in order to verify that. So, you know, it's very promising theoretical-wise, but it still remains theoretical, you know. So that's why I am trying to find something in the lake of a physical nature. So at this point, based with the amount of money that we have to work with and something that is practical, the two easiest things that I could come up with was looking for bones of dead ones in places like underwater caves or possibly on the bottom. Right. Which means you have to go down under the water to where these things die in order to find those. Or less probable, encountering a live one at the surface close enough to get a tissue sample from one using a biopsy dart from which you could get a small plug of tissue and get a DNA Mm -hmm. sample of it. So anyway, getting back to the caves, there are three that we know of that would have been underwater during the Champlain Sea that are above ground now. Those are the ones at Cave Island in Mallets Bay in Lake Champlain. And then there's one further away from the lake called the Donahue Sea Cave, which during the Champlain Sea period it would have been part of the Champlain Sea, even though it's not technically part of Lake Champlain now. There is a lagoon there in front of this cave. And that's in Burlington, Vermont, uh, off North Avenue. So this past August, I was finally able to actually swim over and get inside the caves at Cave Island. But unfortunately, I didn't have an underwater camera with me. So I didn't want to get my camera wet, but I swam over and went inside the two caves at Cave Island. I didn't find any bones. The most interesting thing I saw, and I'm going to explore this further next time I go back, there was a big, long scratch on the roof of the cave. But this was all covered with moss and everything, and I didn't have a brush or anything to clean it off. But I'm going to try to make arrangements to do that next time. And the possible significance of this long scratch on the roof of the cave is that it looks like some of the scratches that are associated with Native American petroglyphs that have been found in southern Vermont near Brattleboro in the West River. This is way further south of Lake Champlain, um, but there are historical Indian petroglyphs made by the Western Abenaki that appear to show snake or serpent-like creatures on one particular set of petroglyphs. And these petroglyphs used to be above above water, but in 1909 they built a dam to dam the river. And when they 
built the dam, they had an estimate of how high they thought the water would go up, but it went up higher than they thought it was going to. And because the water went up so high, these petroglyphs, these Indian petroglyphs, are now underwater. Hmm. And there are archaeologists and divers in Vermont that are trying to relocate them where they're at underwater. They know the general area. They have historical documents to tell them roughly where it is. They've only found uh, one set so far, but it's not the one with the sea serpent-type petroglyphs on it. The one with the serpent-like petroglyphs on it has what looks like a giant snake on one, and then there's this other one that has like a large central-looking body, and there are four short spots coming off it, or actually five, one that looks like a tail, and one that would correspond to four limbs or flippers, and then a long curved neck-looking object, which has what looks like an end of a head on it. So it looks for all the world like an elasmosaurus, which is one of these super long-necked plesiosaurs that they know existed during the late Cretaceous. That doesn't mean that's what it is, but uh, <clears throat> in the slide now, did show, they get pictures see, of these before the it, before the the water covered them? Yeah, there's there's one set of pictures that was taken in 1866 that shows part of the, the um, figures on the petroglyph. There's a photograph that shows what looks like a dog and two bird-like humanoids. This is an actual hmm. photograph that's taken in 1866, and I've reproduced that in the slideshow. However, there is a drawing that shows the whole petroglyph that was made sometime... In the 1850s, I believe. And on that one, you can see the whole, all the figures that are supposed to be on the petroglyph, and you can see the two snake-looking and plesiosaur-looking objects. So anyway, Mm -hmm. uh, getting back to what was originally planned for the expedition, we we had it planned that Will was going to come up with his boat and a sonar, and when Jeremy was going to come up, and... um, do the diving. So anyway, what happened was a lot of things got turned upside down because my partner, Will, found out he had pancreatic cancer, and he's fighting that. Yeah. <clears throat> We're hoping awful. that possibly next year, if he's feeling up to it, he can come up then. Right now, he's in the middle of uh, chemotherapy, and we're all pulling for him, hoping yeah. for the best. So he had to cancel. Yeah. He had to cancel appearing at the cryptozoology conference. So then I, I, you know, I knew he wasn't coming. But I've got another friend that I worked with over the last two years named John Cronin. He has access to a much smaller boat, and we were going to use him as backup anyway, even if Will had brought his boat up. So then, you know, I had to retool the expedition to work with Jeremy and hopefully uh, John and his boat, you know, to kind of try to do the same thing. But without a lot, they, you know, we, we weren't going to have the hydrophones. 
Uh, we weren't going to have the underwater cameras. We weren't going to have um, the sonar. So, you know, I was kind of having to replan everything. And then Jeremy got sick and couldn't come. So then it was down to just me and John. John had to have surgery as well and was originally scheduled to have it on September 14th. So we were going to try to sort of stick to the original time frame. Then his surgery got bumped up two weeks to August 30th. So then I had to, to slide everything up to August so me and John sat down and we talked about this, and he had to come. He lives in uh, Colchester, Vermont, <clears throat> which is on the shores of Lake Champlain, north of Burlington. But he has a lot of friends and comes to Florida a lot. So it turns out he was going to Miami for a couple of days. So then we figured out, well, okay, You go to Miami, and then you swing back up here and pick me up, and we'll just drive to Vermont. Then I can fly back. Okay, that's what Mm. we did. This was like middle of the second week of August, something like that. He came and picked me up, and then since we were going through Georgia and the Carolinas, we said, hey, why don't we stop off and see the Altamaha statue? Now, if people don't know what that is, there is a legendary river monster in the Altamaha River in Georgia, south of Savannah. This creature has been sighted in the river since at least 1969. There's a long history of sightings. A long-necked, plesiosaur-type creature, mm-hmm. typical of your and it, does it match what champ sightings. Looks like? More or less, um, for some reason, I don't know why specifically, but the Altamaha is described as not having a set of back flippers. So what it basically looks like is a, a plesiosaur without a set of back flippers and a long tail with a fish-like tail on it. Some people have interpreted it as being a, a giant long-necked seal, which is, you know, an alternative theory to the plesiosaur idea. But it, you could also describe it as looking like a plesiosaur without a set of back flippers. But it's got the long neck and the snake-looking head. So anyway, in Darien, Georgia, at the Visitor Center, they have built the statue of the monster. I, I'm actually friends with the guy that built the statue. He's a model maker named Rick Spears, who lives in wow. Georgia. He does really good model work. And uh, we we stopped off in Darien and, and took some photographs with the statue. And you can see in the slideshow a picture of me standing next to the statue. Mm-hmm. So anyway, now, that that's not the size made. of it, is it? Uh, I would think it's not too far off. Okay. I don't think they describe it as being that large. So, yeah, I would say it's probably maybe wow. a little smaller than I the thought, general yeah. reports, but it's not... It's not reported as being that large. Uh, the other interesting thing relative to the Altamaha is that 60 miles south of the mouth of the river is the St. John's River in Florida. 
which runs for hundreds of miles, into inland Florida. And there's a similar history of sightings of a basically identical creature seen in the St. John's River in Florida that started in the 1950s. So being that they're so close together and they think that both monsters are coming in from the sea and swimming up the rivers temporarily and then going back out, I wouldn't be surprised if the Altamaha and the St. John's River monster are one and the same creatures. Oh, and really? They're moving occasionally between both rivers. Yeah, because the sightings are basically identical and the, the time frame's similar, so, you know. Hmm. That would surprise be me at all. Yeah, so... Anyway, for a couple of days, you know, we were going up through Georgia, South Carolina, North Carolina, Virginia, went to D.C., New Jersey. Anyway, so we finally get to Vermont, or actually, before we get to Lake Champlain, we stop off in Brattleboro so I can get some pictures of the place in the river where those uh, petroglyphs are and I took a few photographs and some video of that and our original idea was to have Jeremy dive there to see if he could find the petroglyphs and you know like I said that he was unable to do that so maybe we can do that next year so let's see we get we get to Lake Champlain I'm trying to remember what we did first. Hang on a minute here. Let me see. So you had the boat Or was the boat already up there where he was? Oh, the boat was already in the lake. At a marina. Okay, I Yeah. Okay, gotcha. So, like I said, I can't remember the exact order of what days we did what. But anyway, we went to explore Cave Island. And we could only get so close with the boat because of the rocks and everything. So I had no choice but to jump in and swim over there to get in these caves. And my camera was not an underwater camera, so I had to just jump in and go and go over there. Mm-hmm. Uh, John took video and pictures of me from the boat, but I wasn't able to bring the camera over because I didn't want to run it and get it wet. You know, right. the only way I could get over there was to get in and swim, and I didn't want to get the camera wet. So, right. Now, can you problem. describe what this cave looks like for viewers who may not know? Is well, some of this underwater? There's, okay. And the there's a picture show. of okay, me standing good. in the mouth of the cave on the slideshow. That's the mouth of one of them. The okay, and how far back does this cave go? Oh, I'd say probably about 10, 12 feet maybe. Okay. It's got a really high roof, 
and you go inside and it's rounded, and there's another little room off to the side of it. And what formed this cave thousands of years ago was wave action from the Champlain Sea dug out this shallow, relatively shallow cave. And that's the same story for the one, the other one, the Donahue Sea Cave. So anyway, I swam over and went inside the cave and looked, and, you know, there was all kind of rocks along the bottom of it, but I didn't see anything that obviously leapt out as, at me as looking like a, a bone or a piece of a skeleton. But like I said, in the main cave, there was this big scratch on the roof, and it looks like some of the scratches associated with these Indian petroglyphs in Brattleboro. So next year when I go back, I've got an underwater camera. I'm bringing that. So I can I can bring that with me into the cave. And I'm going to try to make arrangements mm-hmm. to clean off that roof and see if there are petroglyphs under all that moss on the, on the roof of the cave. Mm. And then I... I came out of the main cave, and over to the left, there's a smaller cave. And then I went in that one, and it had two rooms in it. There was all kinds of wood debris that had washed in or whatever had been brought in. So, I mean, I would imagine that the Indians that lived there thousands of years ago would have thought this was a sacred place because... You know, it looked like you could have a group of people living in this cave, I mean, and be comfortable, you know. If you had, you know, a wooden canoe or whatever and could regularly go back and forth, it would have been a great place to live, you know. So it's entirely possible that thousands of years ago, Paleo-Indians or, or at Western Amanaki lived in that cave and may have carved things on the side are now buried by vegetation growing on the roof and all sorts of stuff like that. So it's worth looking into. And also, if we do find bones in the cave, they may not be bones of recently dead animals. They may be fossils like the Charlotte whale. In the slideshow, you'll see a picture of me standing next to a glass case with a whale skeleton in it. And that is a skeleton of a beluga whale that lived in the Champlain Sea roughly 11,000 years ago. It was found on a, on a bluff in Charlotte, Vermont, which is on the side of Lake Champlain in 1849 by people who were trying to lay track for a railroad and were digging out space for a railroad track. When they first found it, <clears throat> they thought it was a horse skeleton. Oh, really? Yep. The state geologist, a guy named Zadok Thompson, was contacted, and he figured out, no, this is a whale skeleton. It's a skeleton of a beluga whale. And as far as I know, this was historically the first evidence that made them put together the story that, okay, this used to be salt water. And it was found up on a bluff. And the reason it was found up on a bluff is that when it was the Champlain Sea, the water level was 200 feet higher 
than the modern day Lake Champlain. It was less than Lake Vermont. It was about 300 feet uh, shallower than Lake Vermont, but it was still 600 feet deep. Modern day Lake Champlain is only 400 feet deep. Uh, it's maximum. So the reason they found this up on a bluff is because that bluff used to be the seashore when the water was deeper. So this this whale uh-huh. that washed ashore died and become buried under sand and was up at a sand bluff that that was now, you know, up on a hill. Uh-huh. But thousands of years ago <clears throat> it would have been the seashore. That's the and uh and for them mm-hmm. to stumble upon it like that, it's just yeah. Well, they were like they were, like I said, they were digging for a railroad, and if they hadn't been doing that, they probably wouldn't have found mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. And in a similar manner, over at the old Air Force base on the other side of the lake at Plattsburgh, they found two sets of seal bones a century apart. Mm. Yeah, so they that found like seal bones that like around 1901, 1902, in that time frame. And then they found another set in 2000, I believe it was 2001, in the same area. So a century apart, they found two sets of seal bones in New York State. And also, way over in New York State, at a place called Norfolk, New York, they found another beluga skeleton. And including those two, the one they found in, in Charlotte and the one found in Norfolk, plus the one that they found in Canada, they found like 21 beluga skeletons from Champlain Sea deposits. Wow, that's and up amazing. In Quebec, up in Quebec, near a place called St. Nicholas, they found a walrus skull. So there were all kinds of, you know, marine animals living in the Champlain Sea that, as far as we know, aren't here now in modern-day Lake Champlain, to the best of our knowledge. However, mm-hmm. there are historical accounts of seals being in the lake from the 1800s. There's three cases, possibly four. And then about two years ago, <clears throat> a seal tried to get into the Champlain-Hudson Canal which is a man-made canal that connects the bottom of Lake Champlain to the Hudson River. So this seal had swam up the Hudson River from New York and was trying to get into Lake Champlain by swimming through the canal systems. They found it and took it back out. So there are still seals Mm -hmm. trying to get into Lake Champlain even now. Wow. (laughs) Yeah, so there's a lot of, you know, even if there's not, quote, you know, the, the the classic monster that we all hope is there. There are some weird things going yeah. on besides that that, you know, may be clouding the issue. Right, um, because if you, let's say there was a seal that got in there and somebody was eyewitness to that, you're not expecting to see a seal in Lake Champlain. Yeah. So, you know, that would... That could be well, a case seals, of mistaken identity. Seals occasionally get into Loch Ness, too. That's wow. still happening now. Despite the fact that they have canal systems, too. Interesting. The um, The northern part of Lake Champlain is connected to a river called the Richelieu River. 
on this river there are two dams and a canal system. Once you get to the top of the Richley River, it connects to the St. Lawrence River, and that goes all the way out to the Gulf of St. Lawrence and goes out to the Atlantic Ocean. So including the Mad Main Canal that connects the bottom of Lake Champlain to the Hudson River, you've got two connections to the Atlantic Ocean at both ends of Lake Champlain. But the problem is you have all these dams and canals, which are very difficult for an animal to get around. And at one place on the Richley River where one of the dams is, the St. Alvarez Dam, there's a drop in elevation of 16 feet. So anything coming over that elevation drop is either got to jump over and land in the water, or if it's trying to get out the other way, has to climb over that 16-foot dam. So mm. there are migratory fish that pass through there, but have special fish wears for these relatively small fish to get in and out through around the dam and canals. So, you know, there's no evidence of an underwater cave that connects Lake Champlain to the ocean. People have theorized it, but there's no solid evidence for it, and there's no such evidence for something like that in Loch Ness either. But there is the River Ness, independent of the canal system at Loch Ness. So... You know, during times of high water, it's possible something could get in and out without anybody seeing it, but it would be a rare occurrence. And the same thing for Lake Champlain. So, to me, the most logical answer is that whatever, if there is a monster in Lake Champlain, the most logical answer is there's a small colony of them that have been in the lake since the time the Champlain Sea, and they're in there all the time. Well, these things, if they uh, exist there, um, they would, how often do you think they would come to surface and be seen? Well, that depends depends on what kind of animal they are. Right. A lot of people, you know. Yeah, well, you know, based on a lot of the photographic evidence, and the eyewitness testimony evidence, people seem to be describing something that looks like a long-necked plesiosaur. Now, the problem that you just brought up relative to plesiosaurs is that, as far as anyone knows, plesiosaurs were reptiles with lungs and air breathers. Mm -hmm. So that automatically says, okay, they have to come up for air, right? The only theoretical way around this problem, and it is possible, we know that there are certain freshwater turtles that live in Australia. Um, What is it called? The fly, I think it's the fly river turtle. No, wait a minute. Oh, what is it called? Hang on a second. Can you give me a second here to look something up? Sure. All right. There are three rare turtles in Australia, and it's hard. Then they're all named after rivers. Okay, the Fitzroy River turtle is what this thing is called. Anyway, they figure out this turtle 
relatively small turtle, gets 70% of its oxygen directly from the water mm. instead of coming up for air. I mean, it comes up for air, but it's getting most of its oxygen directly from the water like a fish does. Wow. And how how this works is <clears throat> it's breathing through its butt. Now, I know that sounds like a joke, but no, this is the trick. Oh, wait a minute. Back up for a minute. The, this turtle is breathing through its backside. Is breathing through its rear end, yes. It's, okay. it's a thing called cloacal bursae respiration. Okay. okay. The cloaca is the butt of the turtle. It's where it does all of its business, lays its eggs, all that stuff, right? Okay. All right. So inside its butt, there is a sac lined with blood vessels called the cloaca, or the bursae of the cloaca. Okay, what's going on is <clears throat> it's it's bringing ox it's bringing water inside of its cloaca, and these blood vessels which line the sac, the bursae, are absorbing oxygen directly from the water like a fish gill. This oxygen that's being absorbed goes into the bloodstream through that sac. It's essentially it's working the same way a fish gill works. Mm-hmm. So there has wow. been some speculation. Um, yeah. Now, this is a scientific fact that the small turtle and a few others are doing this. I mean, that part is beyond dispute. Now, going more theoretical, there has been some speculation that perhaps some plesiosaurs might have been able to do this, too. And the logic behind the argument is that some of the elasmosaurs, the super, super long-necked plesiosaurs, had such long necks and small heads, there are all kinds of questions relative to how the blood pressure in these animals worked and how they could get oxygen in through that small head and that super long neck down to the body where the lungs were. So... Mm-hmm. It's been speculated mm-hmm. that these elasmosaurs may have used underwater methods of respiration, as some other kind of aquatic reptiles do. They can absorb oxygen through their skin, through their throat, and through the cloaca. So, in other words, there's some speculation that possibly plesiosaurs might have learned this trick too. And if we're dealing with a much larger animal, with a much larger cloaca, it's theoretically possible if there's enough oxygen in the bottom of the lake and in the water, excess oxygen, that they may be able to do this. Now, this is the only scientifically plausible answer I could come up with as to how a champ or the Loch Ness Monster could be this elusive and yet be an aquatic reptile. So some well, now that have speculated the same. Yeah. Some people have also speculated that rather than being plesiosaurs, these creatures could be some kind of weird turtle, which ties into the same idea. 
So you got to realize places like Loch Ness and Lake Champlain are not the Marianas Trench and are not the lost world. These are places that have a healthy sports fishing industry, especially Lake Champlain. There's people out in boats all the time. There's people that have lived around these lakes their entire life, have never seen anything that looks like a monster and don't think there's anything to it. You've also got scientific studies being done on both bodies of water by scientists using all sorts of sonar and underwater equipment. So it makes sense that in order for an animal to be real and be this elusive, if there's a group of them, they would have to be staying down in the deepest parts of these bodies of water and rarely coming to the surface. Right. There are very few fish with necks. The only fish I can think of that has a neck is a seahorse. You know, necks in fish is very, very incompatible. So what people seem to be describing is some kind of elongated snake-like creature with a a fattening in the central part of the body or something along the lines of a plesiosaur. So that's the only way I can get a plesiosaur that breathes underwater. It's that way. But it is theoretically possible. So if you want to look it up... would not show up in the bone structure of these creatures. So, no, correct. I mean, I mean there you, can look, no tell. you can look, you can look, yeah, yeah, this would not be preserved. Yeah, so that, the only way you would know right. about this would be from soft tissue preservation. Now, there is hmm. some soft tissue preservation associated with plesiosaurs. There have been found skin impressions. There have been found uh, impressions of blubber, too, contour fat, and the outlines of a tail fin and the outlines of flippers have been preserved. But that's about it. There's no, so far there have been no internal organs preserved for plesiosaur fossils. However, there's a mosasaur fossil. If you know what a mosasaur is, they were marine lizards. Mm -hmm. Yeah. that were contemporaries of the plesiosaurs. There's one uh, particular specimen that is well-preserved that seems to have preserved uh, pieces of an eye, a possible heart, and possible kidneys are preserved in the fossil. So you never know. We may find internal organs fossilized for a plesiosaur if we're extremely lucky, but so far that hasn't happened. Amazing. Anyway, you know, it is theoretically possible, but uh, another question that comes up a lot, particularly with Lake Champlain, is that some years the lake completely freezes over, and people have said, "Well, how could an air-breathing animal survive if the lake completely freezes over?" Well, <clears throat> up in northern Quebec. There is a lake called Lacs de Loups Marins, which that's French. You translate that. It's Lake 
of the marine seals. And the reason it's called that, there's a population of harbor seals that are isolated that live in the lake year-round. And this lake also freezes over, and they, they sat down and they asked themselves, how in the possible for these seals to survive under the, under the, in the lake when it completely freezes over? And they figured out <clears throat> that there are rocks around the side of the lake. And when the ice starts freezing, the water level, which is absorbed into the ice, goes down. Around the rim of the lake where there are rocks, as the water level goes down and the ice is forming, attached to these rocks, it leaves air pockets between the surface of the water and where the ice is. And they figure out what's going on is these seals are coming to these air pockets around the rim of the lake and breathing and getting oxygen under the ice. Hmm. That is theoretically, very interesting. Theoretically, whatever champ is could do the same thing. <clears throat> so if you just right, the whole and... butt-breathing thing, if you want to look it up on Wikipedia, the technical term of, of it is cloacal bursae respiration. That's C-L-O-A-C-A-L. B-U-R-S-A-E, respiration, is the technical term for it. But street vernacular, it's butt breathing. Wow. And yeah. what in the world but, uh, you know, evolution this is, this is real. I'm not making this up. Why? Why would I make something this ridiculous up if right. it wasn't true? You know? Yeah, that, is, that, that could answer a lot of things. Yeah. Um wonder so, how many other people have thought of that. Yeah. Well, I don't know, but I put it together. So you heard it from me. Anyway. You heard so it right here. Where, where am I going with this? Okay. Going back to the Champlain Sea, we have abundant fossil remains of seals and whales and different kinds of fish and sturgeons and walrus and all kinds of things that lived in the Champlain Sea. So the obvious question comes up, okay, if there are plesiosaurs left over from the Champlain Sea, why don't we find bones of plesiosaurs in Champlain Sea deposits? Okay, here's a possible answer. They think that what the Champlain Sea was essentially like would be like this bay, this bay that's around now up in Nova Scotia called the Bay of Fundy, has essentially the same fauna as are preserved as fossils in the Champlain Sea living in it, right? But there are some animals that are found in the Bay of Fundy that are abundant there, well-known, that don't occur as fossils in the Champlain Sea. And the most conspicuous one is this type of seal called the gray seal. Now, there are lots of seal remains found in the Champlain Sea fossil deposits. Remains of four different kinds of seals, harbor seals, hooded seals, ring seals, 
and the other type eludes me, plus walrus, which walrus are a type of seal. So anyway, there are five types of pinnipeds or seals that are known from Champlain Sea Deposits. For some reason, the gray seal is not there, and nobody knows why. Now, you've heard about the great whites that are suddenly attacking people off Cape Cod, Massachusetts, correct? Mm-hmm. Right. Okay, the reason the great whites are hanging out off Cape Cod is that there's a large colony of gray seals living there, and that's what they like to eat. They like to eat warm-blooded marine mammals, like seals and small whales and stuff of that nature, dolphins, that kind of stuff. But, but they like to eat seals, and that's why the great whites are hanging around. So these seals, these gray seals, are found all over New England and parts of coastal Canada, and in the Bay of Fundy. But for some reason, there are no fossil remains that have been found yet of gray seals. Theoretically, they should have been here, but they just have not been found yet. Uh, Another two other types of animals that should have been occurring in the Champlain Sea that do occur in the Bay of Fundy are the leatherback turtle and the uh, Greenland shark. Now, sharks have a cartilaginous skeleton, so their remains are fairly rare anyway. Now, relative to this leatherback turtle, something very interesting happened back in February in Nova Scotia. There's a place, part of Nova Scotia, called Cape Britain, Breton, B-R-E-T-O-N. Okay, on this island in Cape Breton, there is a partially saltwater lake called Brasdeor Lake. So it's brackish water, which means it's partly salt and partly fresh water. Anyway, back in February, somebody that lives around there, I can't remember his name off the top of my head, was walking around the rim of the lake and saw what he thought was a sunken boat. And he went over to investigate what it was And it wasn't a sunken boat at all. It was a dead leatherback turtle in the middle of this lake. Everybody was in shock. Right? So somehow this turtle had found its way into the lake and died from what they don't know. They think it may have starved to death or something. But this is, you know, unprecedented. They pulled this... A giant turtle, sea turtle, out of this frozen lake. Mm. One thing I should say about the leatherback turtle, it's the largest known fully marine reptile that we have today. That doesn't mean that there may not be things out there that we haven't found yet that, you know, would account for some of these sea monster reports like Max's giant turtle or a living plesiosaur. Or a living mosasaur, you know. These things could be out there. There are a lot of sightings. And you have things like the Zio Maru carcass, which people still debate about, which could have been, theoretically, a giant marine reptile of some sort, resembling a plesiosaur, but 
the, the you know, a lot of the evidence points in the other direction to it being a basking shark, but there were still doubts from some quarters, so it's still, you know, uh, a possible maybe, uh, you know. Anyway, the the largest one we know about is the leatherback turtle, and they're unique from the other sea turtles in being partially warm-blooded. They can function in water temperatures um, that would kill the other known types of sea turtles. And the reason why, they have blubber, and they also have a special network uh, to keep a blood circulation, to keep warm blood inside the core of their body, and their muscle activity can raise their body temperature. They're not fully warm-blooded like a mammal or a bird, but yet they're partially warm-blooded, but they also have a low cold-blooded reptilian metabolism. They have the best of both worlds. They don't need as much food as a warm-blooded mammal to feed themselves and keep their body going, yet they can function in cold water like a marine mammal can. So they really have the best of both worlds. And an animal like that would be perfectly fit for living in a place like Loch Ness or Lake Champlain. It would be able to function in the cold water temperature, yet wouldn't need as much food as a warm-blooded mammal. So it would literally have the best of both worlds. Anyway, so theoretically, there should have been leatherback turtles, which is very similar physiological-wise and the way it's built and all that, to a plesiosaur. And it's not an exact match. There are fundamental differences. We know plesiosaurs gave live birth in the water and didn't lay eggs. All known sea turtles, including the leatherback, have to come ashore and lay eggs. But anyway, it's the closest living thing we have to a plesiosaur. And any talk of some kind of a plesiosaur-like reptile living in the Champlain Sea and having survived over into Lake Champlain kind of theoretically comes back to something along the lines of a leatherback turtle. If it was a plesiosaur or there are plesiosaurs living here today, they have to deal with this cold water temperature problem. An animal with the physiology and special adaptations, blubber and all this stuff, would be able to function in a place like Loch Ness and Lake Champlain. And we even have paleontology data to back up this idea. But anyway, so the fact that they discovered this leatherback turtle in this lake, frozen lake, in February of this past year, or no, February this year, in this lake, tends to make you think, well, yes, okay, so... It looks like a leatherback turtle would have at least tried to come into Lake Champlain and would probably have been able to live in the Champlain Sea. Because we know these leatherback turtles live in cold water, and this Brasdior Lake apparently is not that productive that it would have enough food to feed a large leatherback, and that may have been why this turtle starved to death. I don't know. But we do know, based on all the different abundant fossils 
from the Champlain Sea that the Champlain Sea would have been able to support probably a bunch of leatherback turtles. <clears throat> what the leatherbacks do, they eat jellyfish. And the largest, biggest jellyfish are found in cold waters. So what the living leatherback does is it goes up into very cold water in the spring and summer up past, you know, Labrador and Newfoundland, way up northern Canada, very cold water, you know, almost to the Arctic, eating these giant jellyfish. Then it comes, during the summer, it comes south to lay its eggs and reproduce. So it's in the, you know, or, or during the winter it's coming south to reproduce. So what it's doing this summer, it's going way up north to northern Canada, almost to the Arctic, eating these giant jellyfish. Then when it's getting too cold for it to be up there, it's coming south, down to places like Costa Rica and South America, even here in Florida, to reproduce and lay eggs on the beach. So it's a migratory animal. So it turns out not only was there this one case of the turtle found in the lake in February, there was another case also in Nova Scotia of one swimming 11 miles up a river. Uh, Really? And when was that? that This was in 2012. Okay. Let me just read this real quick. It's from CBS News, August 2012. Endangered sea turtle dies after swimming up Nova Scotia River. A huge leatherback sea turtle that swam in the Nova Scotia's Shuba Kanadi River has died. The animal was spotted Friday by a local who had been trying to help it along. More locals joined the rescue effort Saturday when it was spotted again, pouring water on it to keep it hydrated. The turtle was about 20 kilometers up the river, a long way from salt water where it needs to live. The nearest body of salt water is the Bay of Fundy. On Sunday, officials from the Department of Fisheries and Oceans removed the animal from a mudflat using a winch, ropes, and chains. Okay, so anyway, here is two cases of a presumably fully marine reptile the largest we know of, it can get about 10 feet long, trying to, you know, enter a lake and then swimming up a river with brackish water. So yeah. this is, these two things put together, to me, strongly suggest that there would have been leatherback turtles living in the Champlain Sea, yet we have found no bones of them. So all that yeah. means is... Okay. There may be bones of leatherback turtles, and there may be bones of relic plesiosaurs in Champlain Sea deposits that we have not found yet. So just because we haven't found their bones doesn't mean that they weren't there or may still be there now, if you follow the logic of all of this. Yeah, I mean, that would... Right. I, there's got to be some type of scientific, um, you know, facts that go along with 
whatever it is that's being seen, you know, it, it definitely has to meet the criteria to be able to, you know, live in there, first of all. Yeah. And well, that would make sense. Mm-hmm. That, that's pretty interesting. Yeah, well, another thing that is debated as to whether plesiosaurs and other marine reptiles from the age of the dinosaurs were fully warm-blooded or cold-blooded or partially warm-blooded. Now, there's been a lot of opinion expressed in the paleontology literature that these reptiles were fully warm-blooded like a mammal. If that was the case, they would need probably the same amount of food as a marine mammal, which would make it problematic for them to exist in places like Loch Ness and Lake Champlain. However, I have done a little math research myself, taking the data and comparing it. And part of the problem of comparing the data is a lot of the literature is using English temperature measurement called Celsius. So I had to take this data and translate it to Fahrenheit in order for it to make sense to me and most American people who are used to dealing with Fahrenheit temperature. Yeah, so hang on a second here. i got to get to something. If you'll bear with me. Sure. Let me see here. just a question of me changing files here. Hang on. All right. Now, this is one of the slides that is in the um, slideshow. All right. They did an experiment back in 2010 trying to estimate um, the body temperatures of Mesozoic marine reptiles, which includes plesiosaurs, pliosaurs, ichthyosaurs, the dolphin-like marine reptiles, and mosasaurs. I'm not going to read the whole paper, but I'm going to read the abstract. This is from the science journal Science from 2010. It's an article called Regulation of Body Temperatures by Some Mesozoic Marine Reptiles. There's like ten different authors, so I'm not going to go over all of them, but the primary author is a guy named Aurelian Bernard. Now, here's what it says. Mm -hmm. It says, What the body temperatures and thermoregulation processes of extinct vertebrates were are central questions for understanding their ecology and evolution. The thermophysiologic status of the great marine reptiles is still unknown, even though some studies have suggested that thermoregulation may have been may have contributed to their exceptional evolutionary success as apex predators of Mesozoic aquatic ecosystems. We tested the thermal status of ichthyosaurs, plesiosaurs, and mosasaurs by comparing the oxygen isotope compositions of their tooth phosphate to those of coexisting fish. Data distribution reveals that these large marine reptiles were able to maintain 
a constant and high body temperature in oceanic environments ranging from tropical to cold temperate. Their estimated body temperatures in the range from 35 degrees Celsius to 39 degrees Celsius suggest high metabolic rates required for predation and fast swimming over large, long distance offshore. Now, translating those to Fahrenheit, hang on here. I'll give you the Fahrenheit temperatures. Okay, that's between 95 to 102 degrees Fahrenheit. Now, the human temperature is 98.6. So this means in some cases their body temperature was higher than ours in Fahrenheit, right? So a lot of people, based on this and based on studies of juvenile plesiosaurs and bone histology about how quickly they grew, a lot of people think that plesiosaurs were fully warm-blooded. And there's been speculation that the ichthyosaurs and mosasaurs were too. Now, we know the leatherback turtle is not fully warm-blooded. It's what you call mesothermic. It's got a cold-blooded metabolism, but it's able to function in cold waters. It's able to keep its core body temperature warm enough to function in the same cold waters that whales and seals and marine mammals that live in cold water can function. Okay, I decided to take temperature data that had been gathered for leatherback turtles off Nova Scotia, which is the cold waters that they go up to eat jellyfish in, and compare it with the plesiosaur body temperatures. Okay, this is a paper called Body Temperatures of Leatherback Turtles in Temperate Waters off Nova Scotia, Canada, from the Canadian Journal of Zoology. I'm going to read this real quick, then I'm going to compare the two. And you'll see what I'm talking okay. about. Okay, it mm-hmm. says the weatherback sea turtle, Dermocelles coriacea, has the most extensive range of any reptile migrating from tropical and subtropical nesting areas to distant foraging habitats, including those in temperate and even boreal waters. That means subarctic. This implies flexible thermal functioning. It has been inferred that leatherbacks support active foraging by keeping them warm in cold water rather than becoming lethargic as other marine turtles do. However, data consistent with this view have come from captive turtles in unnatural and stressful conditions. In the present case, foraging leatherback turtles were captured at sea off Nova Scotia and their body temperatures recorded within 10 minutes before such large animals could contain their change their large body temperatures appreciably. Mean access temperature over that of the sea surface, 15 to 16 degrees Celsius, averaged 8.2 degrees Celsius. These results attest to but underestimate the capacity of free swimming leatherbacks to keep warm in northern waters as data from another turtle that was instrumental to record ocean temperature while diving revealed that the leatherbacks forage in this area at the same time, Europe may spend 40% of their time diving in waters cooler than the surface. All right, translating all this into Fahrenheit, 
Let's see. Hang on. Bear with me. Mm-hmm. Okay, translating that to Fahrenheit gives those leatherback turtles higher body temperatures than what they estimate for the plesiosaur, ichthyosaur, and mosasaurs. Okay, as I said a few moments ago, the plesiosaur, ichthyosaur, and mosasaur body temperatures were between 95 to 102 degrees Fahrenheit. Translating that leatherback temperature data gives the leatherback turtles body temperatures of 105 to 108 degrees Fahrenheit. And that upper level gives them a body temperature 10 degrees higher than ours, than a human being. So in other words, so what, what I'm mean? saying is, what, is, yeah, what, is what I'm saying is, is that we know the leatherback is is essentially a cold-blooded animal with special adaptations to keep its body warm like a warm-blooded animal, but it still has a low metabolism like a reptile. What I'm saying is due to the fact that it seems that the leatherback turtle temperatures are higher than the plesiosaur, ichthyosaur, mosasaur temperature estimates, I would use this to say that we don't know that plesiosaurs were fully warm-blooded. In fact, I think it's more likely they would have been partially warm-blooded or mesothermic like these leatherback turtles. And that would mm. make them even more likely to be able to survive in a place like Loch Ness or like Champlain. Now, how we know, <clears throat> okay, independent of the temperature da- uh, data, there is evidence that plesiosaurs lived in cold water. And the reason they know this is that there is all kinds of climate data that during the late Jurassic, early Cretaceous, there was what has been referred to as a cool period, not quite a full-blown ice age, but global temperatures dropped. And they think they dropped to the point that there was not permanent ice in the poles at the South Pole or the North Pole, what we have today. But it got cold enough that winter sea ice formed during the winter at the poles. And they have found plesiosaur bones in these places when they believed there was sea ice in the water and it was cold. So this even more reinforces that idea. Part of the data they used to determine this are you you know how different minerals can change into you know other minerals right like how how coal can over time and under the right circumstances turn into a diamond yeah okay other minerals can change like that too based on different things and one thing that can change can cause a mineral to change is temperature okay There is a mineral called glendonite in South Australia near the poles. There's the South Pole. They have found plesiosaur bones in deposits with glendonite. And in these deposits, this glendonite has changed into what they call a pseudomorph or a different form of glendonite called icaite, 
and the significance of this glendonite turned into icaite is that it only happens under temperatures of 45 degrees. So the fact that this mineral changed and it could only happen at 45 degrees kind of gives you an indication of what the temperature was like when these plesiosaurs died. Huh. They also found in South Australia, they found what they believed to be a birthing area with lots of remains of baby plesiosaurs. So this has even led to speculation that they may have gone to these cold waters to get away from warm-blooded giant predators in order to have their babies in a safe place. We just don't know. Hmm, that would make sense. Yes, and also near the North Pole in Norway, they have found evidence of cold water marine reptiles up there too. So they meant, this means that it was not only happening in, in the southern hemisphere around the South Pole, but was also happening up in the North Pole. So hmm. anyway, this is all very good, you know, theoretical data to support the idea that a reptile with these sorts of physiological adaptations could live in a place like Loch Ness and like Champlain, as cold as the water gets. The yeah, water, that, that makes sense. The water in Loch Ness, the water temperature fluctuates between 41 to 51 degrees. In Lake Champlain, the water temperature fluctuates between 34 and 72 degrees. Now, they know that leatherbacks can survive water temperatures up to 41 degrees Fahrenheit. Now, leatherbacks only get about 10 feet long. Estimates of the size of the Lake Champlain monster generally run between 15 to 20 feet long. So this is a somewhat larger animal as an adult. So what I'm getting at here is if it's a larger, slightly larger animal, it might be able to keep its body temperature higher and generate more heat than a leatherback turtle could. So it might mm-hmm. theoretically be able to live in waters seven degrees colder than what the leatherback is known to survive in. Oh, well, that makes sense. Yeah. So it's possible, too, that uh, that may have been partially why the leatherback in Brazdior Lake died. It may have gotten too cold even for it. And it probably needed food to help generate that heat as well. And I, mm-hmm. I think there may be some jellyfish in Brazdior Lake, but I doubt there's a whole lot of them. So, anyway. You're right. Yeah. Hmm. But getting back to the Champ Expedition, one thing I wanted to nail down that I had researched years ago was a story from 1974 about a seven-foot sturgeon washing up. This would have been a lake sturgeon in a place called Alamite. And the interesting thing is the same thing happened in almost the same place in 2016. And there's a third case of it happening around the turn of the century in the southern part of the lake. Anyway, I have researched this story from 1974 
many years ago, but when I was doing the research, I forgot to write down the date and the newspaper from which it came from. So while I was in Vermont, I decided to go to the Vermont State Archives to see if I could nail this and a few other things down. And the two other things I was looking for, I couldn't find, but I was able to get the article about the sturgeon. Um, hang on a second here. Uh, okay. Bear with me. Having to jump around on this little computer screen looking for mm-hmm. stuff. So. Now, and what article from the year 74 was this one? July 1974 from the Burlington Free Press. Okay. Hang on. It's coming. I just got to find it here. Because there's pretty good evidence that at least a small subset of champ sightings are of large sturgeons, which is the largest fish that we know that lives in the lake. Yeah, and what's the average size of those sturgeons in that lake? I would say an average would probably be about three or four feet. Okay. But there are... seven feet would be way beyond the average. Yeah, there are the occasional ones that get seven feet, maybe even larger. Some people have speculated nine Mm. feet. Okay, I've almost got it here. Hang on. All right, this is from the Burlington Free Press, July 2nd, 1974. Biologists say Champlain sturgeons are on feather edge of extinction, Montpelier, Vermont, AP. A 140-pound, 7-foot lake sturgeon washed up on a North Hero beach from Lake Champlain not long ago. The dead fish whose age was estimated at 50, was one of the last of its kind in the lake. Mm. So anyway, one that was 6.9 feet washed up also at Isle Lamont, or no, at uh, North Hero. Oh, wait a minute. Okay, no, that's North Hero. Yeah, okay, well, it's it's up in the Champlain Islands in almost the same place. Isle Lamont is a different island. But anyway, it was about the same size. And then back around the turn of the century, there was another case, which happened around Port Henry, New York, which is down the southern end of the lake. Let's see, it says, The August 1983 issue of Champ Channels addressed the issue of why no champ carcass. This is from a a newsletter by Joe Zarzinski, who used to... Research Champ. This is my forthcoming book. Champ Beyond the Legend further examines the difficulties in trying to secure a carcass of Champ to convincingly prove its existence. 
Richard D. Smith, a filmmaker from New Jersey, relates to us rumors of a dinosaur carcass washed ashore at Lake Champlain circa 1904 and 1982 while at Lake Champlain. Mr. Smith looked into this rumor. I now quote excerpts from his written statement. I was told by Port Henry Mayor Bob Brown of a dinosaur that had been buried on a beach of a private estate after it had washed ashore around 1904. I was much interested, perhaps the sand had preserved some remains over a mere eight decades, and we'd at last have some undeniable physical evidence. The story had already gone through a few ears and mouths before it reached Mr. Brown. It apparently had come from a historian's conversation with the daughter of the estate manager who said who said to have buried it. Allegedly, estate owner Robinson Marshall had come to the manager, Warren Decker, one morning and asked him to bury that thing on the beach. It was supposedly took a team of horses to move what they found a higher ground for burial. I contacted Mrs. Gretchen Woodman, now living in New Hampshire, the daughter of Warren Decker who had spoken with the historian. It turned out that this occurred just before she was born, and the story was told to her as a child. It was also her impression that it was a large fish, a sturgeon. She referred me to her older sister, Ruth Speak, now living in Castleton, New York. She had seen the animal in question and confirmed that it was a huge fish and not like any sort of dinosaur. She recalled this happening around 1906-1907. A vacation camp now occupies the site of the Marshall Estate. I take Mrs. Speak's eyewitness account as honest and reliable than the fourth-hand account about the dinosaur. So anyway, so there's three cases of extremely large sturgeons washing ashore dead. And they're very rarely Hmm. seen. Anyway, they say that historically, based on conservation biology, that in order for a species to survive, it has to have a population of 50 individuals in the short run and 500 individuals in the long run. Okay, taking the data that we know about the lake sturgeons that are isolated in Lake Champlain, there's an estimated historical population of 3,000 adult individuals. Now, whether that translates into 3,000 um, individuals at this particular point in time, we don't know. But anyway, that's six times the 500 that it takes to perpetuate a species in the long run, population size. All right, what if the population of champs is much less than the population of sturgeons that we know about? Maybe half that, or six times less than that. That would still be enough for the champs to survive, but perhaps encountering them would be extremely rare, and finding their dead bodies even rarer. So we've got Mm. three dead large sturgeons in Lake Champlain in a little over a century, and they're rarely seen alive in a lake anyway. Yeah, that's not very many. I mean, I'm just saying, if you've got something 
In other words, we can use the sturgeons as a rare animal and a known animal that lives in the lake. In fact, the largest that lives in the lake that we know about. We can use data that we know about the sturgeons to theoretically say how likely a champ might be and how often it might be encountered, theoretically. We can actually take known data and apply it to a theoretical concept, which is what I'm doing here. So anyway, I was hmm. I was so happy to nail down that article. And the other another important thing that I wanted to do, which we've got about half an hour to talk about it, but it's pretty complex, are the uh, fossils at Brandon, Vermont. Okay, let me find what I'm looking for here. Bear with me. Well, I'm interested to get in a lot what of what I want to talk fossils? about anyway. Plant fossils okay. from roughly 20 million years ago. And these are found in southern Vermont at a place east of the middle of the lake called Brandon, Vermont. And it's rather complicated, but if you'll bear with me, I'll explain how this ties in with the champ question. Hang on. Okay, wait a minute. I know we don't like to have dead time, but when you're talking about mm-hmm. stuff that's complex, sometimes you have to do some file digging, and it is. Mm-hmm. complex. Okay. So anyway, there are these plant fossils from 20 million years ago found in a place near Brandon, Vermont called Forestdale. They found in this one little deposit that used to be a coal mine. It was found in deposits a brown coal, which they call lignite. And because of that, in the geology literature, they refer to it as the Brandon lignite. One thing you have to understand about the geology of Vermont is that when the ice was coming through during the Ice Age, these glaciers were coming through, as they were coming south, They were so heavy, they were obliterating the rock beneath them and just, you know, breaking it up. You know, like it was coming through and just plowing through it, like plowing through Mm -hmm. a garden, right? Right. Okay, so the result of this was that a large part of the fossil record of Vermont is missing, particularly Mm -hmm. around the Lake Champlain area. There's like a gap of 400 million years that was obliterated as the glaciers were moving through. So generally Mm. what you have is you have stuff from the Ice Age, fairly recent, you know, up until probably 13,000, maybe 14,000 years old. And then after that, you have stuff that is very old. We're talking... 
440 million years old. Very, very old. And the reason why is that all the stuff in between was obliterated and ground down by those glaciers. Probably I didn't know that. Missing, yeah, probably the missing fossil record of Vermont right. is sitting at the bottom of Long Island Sound where it got dumped by these glaciers as they were moving south. It's there, but it's just been ground to pieces. Wow. So anyway, I should I should point out that prior to the Champlain Sea, millions and millions and millions of years before that, there was another sea where Lake Champlain is now, around 400 to 450 million years ago, called the Iapetus Ocean. And because the continents have drifted, this ocean would have been sitting down near the equator. That's how far the continental plates have moved in 400 million years. So 400, 500 million years ago, what is now Vermont would have been down at the equator in the tropics. Oh, wow. And there are fossils left over from this older sea, probably the most famous, or on an island in the middle of Lake Champlain called Isle Lamont, there is a 480-million-year-old coral reef called the Chazy Reef. Remains of this fossil reef stretch all the way from Newfoundland in Canada to Tennessee. So this was like, what, a 3,000-mile-long yeah. coral reef? Yeah, crazy. And now it stretches from Tennessee to Newfoundland. And the amazing thing is, is that when it was alive, it ran from east to west. So what this means is, is that over the course of 400 million years, not only did the continental plate move north, but it rotated west to where this coral reef, which originally ran from east to west, now runs north to south. Because it's turned 90 degrees, if you can understand that. So what you're saying is fossils could be anywhere. Yeah, yeah. Well, anyway, getting back to the the Brandon Lignite, the importance of the Brandon Lignite is that it's 20 million years old. So it's practically the only fossil thing from in between the Ordovician Silurian age. There are some fossils up around Lake Mifamagog that are as late as early Silurian, which is probably 375, 380 million years old, something like that. But anyway, the Brandon Lignite is the only fossil plant or animal in between those two extremes of way back during the Iapetus Ocean and the Ice Age. So there are very important fossils there from midway through the age of mammals. So we're talking about 40 million years after the dinosaur marine reptile extinctions and about 17 million years before the beginning of the Ice Age. 
So what this has to do with Lake Champlain and the Lake Champlain monster is there are not only land plant fossils found at Brandon, but there's also aquatic plant microfossils of phytoplankton. There's a type of phytoplankton that lives in water, both salt and fresh, called a dinoflagellate. And they found this one little microscopic phytoplankton fossil, which they named Septodinium hansonianum. And the interesting thing about this little dinoflagellate is that it's a missing link between the types that lived in the ocean during the age of dinosaurs and the modern freshwater ones. It's a missing link. And in the paper describing this little plant fossil, water plant microfossil, is that they speculate that it must have come, invaded the environment from some place with salt water. Now, hmm. where Brandon is now is connected to Lake Champlain by a river, a quite long river, called Otter Creek. I did some digging into the geology of this, this area, asking questions, and lo and behold, there's one book that mentions a pre-glacial version of Otter Creek. So what that means is that Brandon was connected to Lake Champlain or whatever body of water was there before the Ice Age to Brandon. So putting these clues together, one could say that this little plant fossil might be an indication that it came down the pre-glacial version of Otter Creek from Lake Champlain and that possibly 20 million years ago, there was a version of Lake Champlain before the Ice Age that was connected to salt water. And also what that means is it's possible there could have been things from coming from salt water living in the area that Lake Champlain is now before the Ice Age and possibly during the age of dinosaurs. We just don't know. Hmm. Wow. So whatever these things are, wow. Yeah. We don't know because there's so well, much history involved in that area. Yeah. A lot of the fish that live in Lake Champlain are living fossils left over from the age of dinosaurs. Like the sturgeons, they go back to the Jurassic or the the guards and bowfin. Do you know what a bowfin is? Uh-uh. I don't know. Well, they call them blackfish. Some people call them grinnels. Hmm. They're weird sausage-looking fish with its weird eel-looking fin on their back. That, that looks okay. like a ribbon. That's how they swim. So anyway, oh, wow. the bowfins, the gars, the sturgeons, and the sea lamprey are all representatives of types of fish that thrived during the age of dinosaurs or even before. And all of these and fish are found in Yeah, and they're in Lake Champlain, too. So anyway, the best thing I can point to to say that these creatures could have been 
in the area of Lake Champlain before the Ice Age is there's a place up in the high Arctic called Axel Heiberg Island. And we're talking so far up high up in the Arctic of Canada that when people go up there fossil hunting, they have to deal with polar bears. That's how far north oh, wow. it is. Way up in the high Arctic. Anyway, from Cretaceous deposits at Axel Heiberg Island, they have found freshwater deposits that include plesiosaur teeth and fossil bow fins and fossil gars. So the implication is is that way up in the high Arctic, during the age of dinosaurs, you probably had plesiosaurs eating bow fins and gars, which are fish that are found in Lake Champlain now. Mm. Interesting. There's also evidence, it's also evidence of prehistoric whales, like the Bacillosaurus and Zygodon, feeding on these fishes too, which is another candidate that people would put forward to identify these monsters as an alternative to the plesiosaur idea. So there's been a lot of research done into what happened to all the fish and animals that were living in these places that became glaciated during the Ice Age, what happened to them when the ice came and after the ice melted. So what they found is is that there were bodies of water and land that these animals lived on. And when the Ice Age started, there were multiple Ice Ages. There were actually at least three with interglacials in between them. So every time these glaciations came, whatever was living there either died or had to go somewhere else beyond the ice's margin. And there are places that they went where the ice didn't go, either south of the ice or way north of it or on the sides of it, that these animals went to ride out the ice ages. When the ice melted, they would come back. And when the glaciers would come again, they would go back somewhere south. This happened Mm -hmm. multiple times. So there's evidence of these fishes living in these places before the Ice Age, during the warmer periods of the Age of Mammals and during the Mesozoic. Then when the Ice Age came they went to what they call glacial refugium. Then when the ice melted, they came back, or their descendants came back. So what I'm saying is it's possible there could have been something like Champ living in a pre-glacial version of Lake Champlain that was driven out when the ice ages came and returned at a later point, where its, its descendants returned, to reoccupy the places that it lived before the Ice Age. This includes fish and possibly whatever's eaten the fish. Mm-hmm. So the important thing about this little water plant fossil is it may be indication that if you add up clues from other places that it may be a possible indication of a pre-glacial version of Lake Champlain with marine connections. During the age of animals. So anyway, I went to try to investigate the original 
site where the Brandon Lignite fossils were found, it took two or three attempts to nail down where the fossil deposit was. We actually had to make two trips to Brandon. The first time we went, we went to the wrong GPS coordinates and wound up in the middle of town. And then I got to doing some extra digging and found out, no, 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 it's it's at this pond out in the woods at this corners of these two streets. You have to go out in the woods. Anyway, we finally found it, and I was going to go down in there, and it was so grown up you couldn't get back in there without a chainsaw. Wow. The best I could do was take pictures of the woods leading over to where the place was, but I could see some kind of monkey swamp down in there, but... That's the best I could do this trip. I'm trying to figure out how coming at it from another angle. And the other frustrating thing was I wanted to go into the other sea cave, the Donahue Sea Cave, but it's surrounded by this lagoon with all this muck and algae blooms in it. Now, these algae blooms that have occurred of a similar nature in the shallower parts of Lake Champlain have been toxic algae blooms that can make people sick mm-hmm. and can even kill a dog yeah. if a dog gets in Not good. So I couldn't, in order to get to this cave, you have to go through that lagoon. And in order to even get to the lagoon, you have to go down this long hill and you have to, you know, if you're not going to get in the water, which I was hesitant to do because of all that You have to get either a raft or a canoe or something down there. My friend John's got a canoe, but it's too big to get in his truck. We didn't have a rack mount, so I couldn't figure out how to get in there other than to swim. And the more I looked at that toxic looking algae, I was like, I don't know about this, you know? (laughs) So what I decided to do is next summer... Now I've got an underwater camera ahead of next summer's trip. I'm going to buy a raft of some kind, drag it down that hill, and get over there that way. And the thing is, it's very frustrating, is that you can easily get in that cave in the middle of winter, but you have to wait for that lagoon to freeze. Mm-hmm. And the thing is, right. you get in there, there's all this ice, and I'm wanting to find out what's possibly sitting outside the mouth of it in the lagoon that may have fallen out of the cave. That might be bones or whatever, you know. And, uh-huh. and like the easiest way to get in there is in the dead of winter, like January, February. You have to get up and walk down this long hill in the freezing weather and, and basically go ice skating over to the mouth of the cave. Uh-huh. So, right. you know, and I want to get in there. Florida. Yeah. Uh, well, no, I lived in Vermont for 18 years. No, I lived there for 18 years. So I'm, the, the cold oh, isn't I lived there. Lord, no. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I lived spent 18 years in the winters there. So, Jeez. so anyway, but that's, um, you know, it's all ties in together. And the thing is, around the same time that these uh, 20-year-old plant fossils existed, there's also a possible plesiosaur backbone from New Jersey, which is not that far from the mouth of the Hudson River, 
which ultimately connects to the bottom of Lake Champlain. And, you know, there's been times in the prehistoric past when the water level was higher that it definitely connected to the bottom of Lake Champlain without any kind of artificial canal. There is a, a backbone that was discovered in 1825 in New Jersey that was originally classified as a plesiosaur backbone. Sometime during the 1850s, around 1853, another paleontologist looked at it and decided that it wasn't a plesiosaur vertebrae from the edge of the dinosaurs, but was the backbone of a dolphin-like whale from the Miocene or Pliocene, which puts it up around the time of that Brandon fossils. Now, the question is, is there's all sorts of debate about, okay, is it is it a whale? How old is it? Is it a plesiosaur? Because there have been fossils from different ages found around it there. So what I'm saying is it's possible that this backbone of whatever it is, if it's a plesiosaur, it could be a plesiosaur from the Miocene age, about 20 million years after the presumed extinction, or about 40 million years after the presumed extinction of plesiosaurs. And you have to look at this in the context of a whole bunch of other fossils that have been found after the presumable extinction of plesiosaurs that have been found in mammal age deposits and ice age deposits even. So in other words, you take this and a bunch of other fossils, which I have talked about in the past, and at some point I would like us to do a show on exclusively, there may be a missing fossil record of plesiosaurs mm-hmm. after their presumed extinction going all the way from the time of the dinosaur extinctions up to the Ice Age. But that's more than I can go into this time. Right, ago. that would be the interesting stuff for sure. Anyway, uh, one other thing is that some of the plant fossils that have been found at Brandon have also been found in uh, a place in Maryland, and the same place that the fossil, similar fossils have been found in Maryland, they have found the bones of freshwater river dolphins, which are a type of a whale, small whale that lives in freshwater. So that might be hmm. significant too. It's possible that you know some people think the Champlain monsters are some kind of primitive whale then if the matchup between the vegetation may be significant regarding that. So I don't know. Mm-hmm. But anyway, we've about run out of time, so I'll let you, if you got any last yeah, minute got, questions. Yeah, a couple minutes. Yeah, um, so you're definitely going to do a 2019 expedition. Um, Absolutely. And you do that in the summer, right? Summer or early fall. Early fall, yeah. Um, I've been out there on a, on the lake as late as November. The Japanese expedition was in November of 2016, and we oh, were really? still able to to do do a lot then. So mm-hmm. go as late as that, you know. Okay, well, I'll tell you what. Um, getting those underwater cameras, you can get access to those for your next trip. Yeah, well, I. Be real curious I, to see if you could find those uh, those underwater drawings. Yeah, yeah. 
Well, it's I got a whole bunch of a whole list of things to do, so no lack of stuff to do. Um, hopefully, Will can come up this next trip, mm-hmm. and if not, perhaps I can get him to build me an underwater camera to take with me. You know, mm, that's a good idea. I'm also yeah, contemplating buying a. Mm-hmm. I'm also going to buy another biopsy dart, and I also want to buy a um, underwater GoPro between now and then too. So. Yeah. Well, that's awesome. I'm really stoked about the information about the fossilized plant and the connection. Yeah, it's, it's really, I mean, you know, you got to go in some deep uh, digging in the science literature to get this piece and this piece and this right. piece. And you get all these pieces yeah, and you look puzzle. at them and you can, you can put them together like a puzzle. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we're just excited to find out what happens on the next adventure. I'm sure well, it'll be, be uh, phenomenal. It. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, Scott, thank you so much for, for doing another episode of the Haunted Sea. Um, yes, and I thank and you for being there to ask well, sure. questions and be a sounding board, you know? No problem. I enjoy it. And next month, we're going to try to work on getting a special guest speaker for everybody, so stay tuned for that. Yep, absolutely. And we really appreciate you all tuning in, and Scott, I hope you have a great rest of your evening, and check us out next month as well, and look for another exciting episode of The Haunted Sea with Scott Martis. Until we meet again, take care, and and be, be safe out there, because... Um, Right now we have a lot of the hurricane situations going on. There's one in Florida, and we just had one in North Carolina. So there's a lot going on out there um, in the in the ocean. So who knows what this could stir up. Yep. So, uh, you know, I'll talk to you next time, Scott. And yep. For the Haunted Sea, this is yep. Julie Wrench. Thank you. Good night. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.